Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 223 with my guest Heather Marlowe. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, fill out surveys uh, so we can get to know you, the listener. Um, unload your deepest, darkest secrets. It certainly is a big part of the show, um, the, the stuff that you guys share in those. You can also browse and see how other people have filled out surveys. You can join the forum. You can read guest blogs. You can support the show financially, uh, all kinds of stuff. So uh, please go check out the uh, the website. Um, I want to read some struggle in a sentence surveys before we get to the interview with, um, with Heather. This is, uh, this one is by Tiffany and about her depression. She writes, I have no idea what kind, but I feel tired all the time and monotone. Boy, did I relate to that one. And then this is interesting, a snapshot that highlights her life. She writes, I feel too big for the world. Like no one can handle me on any level. As a result, I feel invisible. That one kind of made me scratch my head. I'm not really sure if she means physically too big or um, in terms of personality too big, but uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is from our, our friend Katla, who has filled out uh, surveys before. Katla is a trans woman, and uh, she writes about uh, being trans. She writes, all my life I've buried uh, my true personality to fit in. Now I'm trying to be me, and it feels like I have to climb out of a mile-deep well. And any time I make any progress, someone comes along to dump a bucket of water down the well and make the walls slippery so I, have, so I fall back in again. Thank you for sharing that. 
This is by Liz, and about her depression, she writes, Some days I feel paralyzed, but I'm not sure that's what depression feels like. Oh, yes, that is what depression feels like, at least to me. Uh, and about her anger issues, she writes, Sometimes I get so angry because if I was a man, my personality would be rewarded, not criticized. I would imagine there are a lot of women that relate to that. Um, this is by a woman who calls herself Warrior Wounds and about her love addiction. She writes, If a woman who represents maternal warmth to me is spending time with me, even in passing conversation, I will cancel anything with anyone to be with her. Uh, about her OCD, she writes, I'm sure I've left the door unlocked when I leave the house or I've left the gas going on the stove. No matter how many times I double check, I can't trust my eyes. And about uh, sexual bias, she writes, I'm still healing from being biased against myself for being gay. It's an endless, insidious process, and it's fucking tedious. In a snapshot from her life, she writes, I remember walking to work a few years ago and I started to cross the street. I heard a blaring honk to my left and I saw that I had walked into the path of a bus. I got out of the way, but it took effort. And as the bus passed, I realized it didn't really make a difference to me whether it hit me or not. I was totally numbed out and disconnected from my life. I got into therapy shortly after and I'm happy to say that I no longer feel that way. Love reading that. This is by Red, and she writes about her depression. Sitting alone in bed with your computer and weed every night, wondering why you feel lonely, and then realizing it's because you deserve it. Uh, about uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, she writes, not getting your tire changed for six months because getting stoned is more important. About her anorexia, I feel complete when I feel empty. About her love addiction, seduce you, use you, lose you, miss you, fool you, poor you, fuck me. About her OCD, playing Parcheesi and moving my pieces and yours into the, quote, perfect spot. This is filled out by Ellie and snapshot from her life. Um, she deals with anxiety. She writes, when I first went to talk to my doctor about my anxiety, I couldn't bring myself to actually say what I wanted to say out loud. So instead, I had to write down my concerns on a post-it note and hand it to her. I felt humiliated like a silly, pathetic child. But you did it. That's all that fucking matters. And I want to high five you for that. This is filled out by Moonshine about her bulimia. She writes, feeling of awful greatness, but this is the last time. About her anorexia, dreams of eating delicious food, wake up in a cold sweat, relieved it didn't really happen. Snapshot from her life, I suffer from bulimia, binge and purge type. Although I'm 50 grand in debt from student loans, I spend obscene amounts of money on binge food. In an attempt to cut back on purging behavior, I treat myself to expensive organic foods and expensive restaurant meals in hopes that it will deter me to purge my meals. It never works. Uh, I love this person's name. Uh, she calls herself O oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> And about her depression, she writes, I'm not sure what kind other than the one time I was diagnosed as being moderately depressed. It feels like you're under a great weight and do not care about anything. For instance, you know you love your parents and your partner, but you don't feel love during the depression. You feel mentally and physically lethargic. That is one of the best descriptions of depression that I've ever read. About her anxiety, she writes, I feel anxiety when I know I have to see my mom. It feels like anticipation of more dread. Wow, that one too. Just so dead on. 
Thank you for that. Uh, this is from uh, Jen Las Vegas, and she writes a snapshot from her life. I am a therapist with my own practice. While starting my practice, my overwhelming and uncontrollable fears of failure led to generalized anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, only one did I have to excuse myself. Only once did I have to excuse myself during session to splash water on my face while my client waited for me in my office. I felt so much shame that as a, quote, expert, uh, I could treat my own anxiety and that it was affecting every area of my life. I'm a person with struggles, but my ego tells me I should be perfect before I counsel others. Uh, I I think the best therapists are the ones that have uh, their own issues and are working on them. Just my two cents. Um, and then finally, Jess uh, writes about her separation anxiety. She writes, I'm adopted and I cling to people when we first meet as if they are my birth mother and I don't want to let them go. When they inevitably do, I know it's my fault, just like from day one of my life. And about being bipolar, she writes, My lows feel like I'm building myself into a brick fortress to shut the world out. When the mania comes, I knock the wall down, but everyone who was standing there when it went up is gone. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Heather Marlowe, who is a writer and performer in the San Francisco area, and you um, are a rape survivor. Yes. How's that for an intro? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, if you look at the media these days, pretty much everyone's a rape survivor. I mean, like literally everybody is coming out as a rape survivor. It's almost everybody's been fucked with in some way or the other, male, female. I mean, it's... It's yes, pretty... it's very trending right now. <laughs> I am serious. Hashtag diddle. Yes. <laughs> it's funny because for years I never even called what had been done to me um, anything. I'd never called, you know, what the neighbor next door did. I never called it molesting. What my mom did, I didn't call it incest. And I wonder how many people um, are like me that don't. Don't know. Did you? I mean, obviously, you knew what happened to you was assault when it happened. Right. Correct? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I definitely did. But, um, you know, it was a it was a blackout. So they it was a drug facilitated rape. And so um, I had like no memory. So when I woke up, it was someone screaming at me, telling me, you know, you have to leave right now and me trying to piece it together. And it was only through like the the sort of um, 
happenstance that I happened to be by a f- nearby a friend's that she t- took me to a hospital and then like things started to come back together um otherwise you know when I left I was like high as fuck and like on whatever drugs I was on and was literally like wandering around the street going like I'm really high like I think I'll go get some food and like <laughs> you know it just really really out there so um uh yeah it was only like after having a rape kit done and having all of that that it was literally listening to the doctor tell me this happened to you that it hit that like it was that realization like that yes this mm. this indeed like I was raped today so I would say of the um 5,000 or so people that have filled out the shame and secret survey on the website. I'd yeah. say about every probably seventh or eighth one is a story similar to yours. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And I'm it, really not surprised. And if something wasn't slipped in their drink, then they they had had too much to right. drink. And either way, it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. fucking matter. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're nude in an alley outside a prison yes. and passed out. Yes. That doesn't make it okay. No, I know. Yeah. I know. that That is, um, you know, uh, I think with the, you know, uh, r- rape in the media so much um, there is a lot of uh, uh, talking and a lot of you know at least it's out there a lot more mm-hmm. and so I think you know uh, that younger generations are I hope are trying you know that there's kind of education going on that's getting this hammering this in I hope so you know I hope so who knows yeah. you know I say that and then it's like you know you look at the violence against women like human rights watch and it's escalated and i'm not and i'm talking about women but this is happening to men too this is happening mm. to um children so you know it's there's a lot of it in the gay community a, a I ton I read, of it in the gay community I read the surveys and, yes yeah. yes i've had um several gay male survivors reach out to me with really painful stories that they cannot even really share because they are so shamed in their community um or they're so ashamed to come forward to the police and there's even i would think a bigger stigma um and you know i'm in san francisco and um i i would say that you know i'm the work that i do or have done has the work that i have done there is dealing with a rape kit backlog there and um hundreds Thousands. Thousands? Yeah. I thought it was around 800, more than no. that. It's thousands, several thousand. They are not letting me know what the full number is. That being said, um, I believe that because San Francisco is such a huge gay community, that um, it's probably, you know, that's just people who have reported, you know, and I think that, that this crime is... is uh it's a power it's all about power and so i would imagine that it you know it really happens in that community as well too did your friend uh encourage you to go to the hospital yes and because you were kind of out of it so yes. you didn't know how did your friend know that something was wrong um she said that she'd received a really alarming text from me earlier that day and um then she didn't hear from me for nearly I think it was 
around eight hours. So when I came stumbling into her house, she said I my eyes were really droopy. I had scars. There was like vomit in my hair and stuff. And I was telling her, like, I think something happened to me. I'm not really sure, but I think I may have been raped. And she said, um, okay, well, we're going to, we're taking you to the hospital and calling the cops. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I don't even, you know, uh, I always have a thousand questions to ask somebody, but sometimes uh, I just, um, um, why don't you, sorry, we just had an an, an audio issue there for a second. Uh, Why don't, why don't you just talk? Because for some reason my brain has just kind of gone to screensaver. It's it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been telling this story um, and through my play so many times, both to the media, both to uh, and to, you know, theatric in a theatrical setting that I'm very comfortable talking about it. What is the name of the play? The Haze. Okay. And. um, Much better choice than Rape Kit Backlog. (laughs) Oh, my God. I fucking hate that terminology by the way because it presupposes that when there's a backlog meaning that um that cops and police departments and law enforcement are aware that those kits are there but they basically uh, like to say that something is a backlog uh, is total like it's bullshit that insinuates that there's an intent to yes to to clear it to clear it and i but in san francisco there's not no and in many in all it, of these it, cities there it, never were why is it money that's what they so that is what you're going to hear on the national media you are going to hear that we can't um fund we did not have funding to test these rape kits and we can't afford to get predators off the street yes we can't afford to get predators off the street yet here we are you know and we are in the era of mass incarceration and you know how much money is being pumped into the prison industry complex and here we are in the land of the war on drugs and the land of militarization of our police departments so if you want to tell me that there's not funding to test rape kits like that's bullshit like it's it's really bullshit why don't we kick a couple of the people out of prison that were in there for having marijuana exactly and have them process the rape kit Thank how you. about that yes. how about that exactly that's i am train all them for that. say for the next five years yes, this is what you're, you're going gonna, to you're going to work for minimum this. wage processing rape kits yes and only rape kits yeah and you can't get high on the job because we need you to be because <laughs> we need the forensic evidence <laughs> Which is like a whole other shit show in and of itself. So I have agitated to have these kits processed at SFPD. And although they sit on thousands, they claim they can only process 753, right? So just last month. Oh, that's where I got that number from. Yes, yes. So just last month, though, the. Per year, that's what they mean? Um, 753 per year. No, that's just it. They're just going to only process 753 and the rest of them. They're just going to not do anything. And um, the even more sort of, it it was actually very traumatizing for me to hear this last month, um, that they have recently discovered that for the past five years, they have kept 
several technicians on their um, at their crime lab who have failed um, any failed. Uh, what's the word like? The standard test that mm-hmm. one needs to pass to be a, to be a you know technician they've they've failed them so now there are tons of quote unquote irregularities oh so rape kits these- that <laughs> might have been screwed up the ones that were processed yes <laughs> so it's like it's so good that you can laugh about this Heather seriously <laughs> when at what point were you able do you remember the first time. Post trauma, yes, that you were able to laugh. Tell, t- it was tell almost, me about that. It was at the hospital when my friend had dropped me off to get um, my rape kit done, and I was left in a hallway. And there were, like, I was left in a hallway at the emergency room, and because the emergency room was filled, and I was amongst all of these bodies on these stretchers, and some of the bodies were like they were moaning and like they nobody was coming to help them they looked like they were going to die and i remember laughing going like this is such a systemic failure right now like and was then, this a hospital for indigent people no it was san francisco general hospital um and i remember in my mind thinking hey this is such a systemic failure and then when my friend came in she was asking me how i was doing and I was like, I can't believe I went to this race today. It was a party that, have you heard of Bay to Breakers? Mm-hmm. So it was at that event that this happened. And I remember thinking, Bay to Breakers? No, in fact, that this was called, in my mind, Bay to Rapers. And then we both started cracking up. But mind you, I was still so high then. Like, you know, That was the first time we laughed. It was like amidst these bodies, no one's coming to help them. Literally, people are dying. My friend's like, what should we do? Where should we go? And, you know. What did you feel in that moment when you laughed? I guess you were pretty high. She was like, you're so sick. She was like, you are so sick. Uh, Yeah, kind of. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, What? Walk me through emotionally what happened as you began to sober up what you felt and thought um it was pretty um surreal i would say that um what really hit me was the realization that like you this was not the first time that i had been violated in my life and i'd spent a good portion of my 20s really and this is in my play to really working through some of the early childhood trauma that had happened and had been through a lot of therapy and invested a lot of money and done EMDR and done all the you know a lot of work to get myself out of something I knew that if I didn't cope with it in a way that was going to move me forward that I would just continue to spiral out and so I really took like a diligent couple three four years to really work through it and it takes time and you don't so takes time it takes years years and it still doesn't really ever you know but it just to get a baseline level where you're not you know making these decisions and leading your life in a way that's effect that is directly driven by driven by it yeah Yeah. um so 
to get out of that and then have this happen was like one of the most that realization in those following weeks like the level of shame that i felt was pretty intense why did you feel and i know that because every every survivor yeah feels sh- shame yeah why what was your brand what was your flavor of shame <laughs> well you know interestingly enough it was really um it was really influenced by the the culture up in San Francisco and I was getting a lot of feedback of people who knew what my past was. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Now now get out. You're a pig. Okay, so they knew what my past was and when they heard that this had happened, they said, "Well, we're not that surprised. Um, you know, I had a mentor at the time who told me you are, um, she started to lecture me about, uh, is it Deepak Chopra? No, Eckhart Tolle and the concept of a pain body, Mm -hmm. which I'd never heard of before, but she lectured me and told me like, you have a pain body and your pain body was not healed and your pain body was wounded. And and it attracted this person. And it attracted this rapist and your pain body being that you, you know, are a survivor of, you know, abuse in your childhood, incest, abuse. And um, so this was bound to happen again. And that's a really shitty way to interpret what he said. I've read he talks about it in the book A New Earth. Okay. And you know it's a really shitty interpretation of that and a really shitty time to interpret that to somebody. So Yes, in the weeks after. You could say yeah, really technically uh, yeah. Sure, yes. There's there's some truth there in terms of pain bodies we we do give off vibes right but, right and predators look for that but it, it made it sound like it was your fault right and at that time in the like post-traumatic shock that i was in and also have being put in charge of my own investigation by the police like i needed all the allies that i could get yeah. but i mean uh i've really come to find out and this seems to ring true not just with rape, but with victimization, that it's really hard to like truly give somebody who is in that state everything that they are going to need. Like it's really hard as a human being in that level of trauma to show up for someone in a way that's like 100% on board, which is not to say that she like, which is not to say fuck her because I'm not friends with her anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, that really, to lead back to what your original question was, that really spiraled me out. Yeah. I want you, before you go to that, though, I want you to expand on what makes it difficult for somebody to truly 100% show up for somebody who has just survived something traumatic. What are the what are the common mistakes that you've seen and what would be some of the right things that somebody can do? Oh my gosh. Okay, so that's so funny because during that time period, I'm just remembering this right now, I was getting so much shit thrown at me for like basically the same thing like you're you've been through this like you are you are recreating your 
past trauma and your past wounding. Like you are just out there recreating this. That, that's so fucked. It's that's so a, fucked. And you, so <laughs> I remember going online, like looking for some sort of like so document to like what not to tell rape victims or victims, you know? Um, and, um, I found something at the time and I remember emailing it to these people saying like, go ahead and take a look at this. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it just had something, you know, it had to do with just saying like, when you are victimized, hence the definition of victimized, it is not ever your, your fault. fault. That was the main thing during that time is getting these gray answers that were like oh it's your fault it's not your fault i promise you it's not your fault but you know and then they go no into buts. the but no buts <laughs> you know and so that that would be my main takeaway from for telling somebody who has just had a victimization be it like broken in and beaten and robbed or their purse stolen from them on the street you know um it's not your fault like that you know that's a really yeah. that's those fuckers faults and i can tell you the people that have had positive experiences with somebody who sees feels and empathizes mm -hmm. with that person it can be incredibly healing for that person um I've read a couple of surveys um, that were brought tears to my eyes where, where some heroic person just gave that person exactly what they needed in that moment. They didn't try to fix them. Um, a couple of them uh, were one was a principal of a mm -hmm. school mm -hmm. and another one was uh, a couple of police officers mm -hmm. that handled it. one of one of the police officers police officers uh, apologized on behalf of humanity to wow. this person and wow. it meant so much to the to this woman and they treated her like an individual and it it was yeah it can make a huge, huge impact huge impact on her yeah um i would imagine if if there isn't that vibe it has to be awful mm -hmm. going through the the collection of dna that they do it mm -hmm. it was it terrible? Oh yeah, it's terrible. It's really fucking horrible. It's it's really interesting because there is somebody, I believe, I read an article at the Memphis Police Department, somebody who is involved with forensic rape kit examinations and she was trying to normalize the experience by saying it's really it's really just like getting a pap smear which is like what like i'm sorry when you go to a pap smear you're coming from whatever you were doing before you're not coming from being raped like wow wow <laughs> that was really rich to read that um yeah it's very it's a very intrusive examination and a re-traumatization and your body is treated like a crime scene so they go ev through every inch of it if they're doing a good job which my you know um nurse practitioner did a great job however they there was the inspector who 
was really trying to get home and so he kept knocking on the door the entire time while like my legs are spread and I'm you know like trying to to like go through basically a re-rape which is what it feels like in the aftermath of it and he's like banging on the door trying to come in like very invasive and then at some point he successfully made his way in so like I was lying there like legs spread nauseous puking a little bit like and giving expected to give a report to the inspector like expected to give a lucid like give a police report that is now my record while you're sitting while you're sitting there yes while i'm lying there in like with my you know in the stilts like (laughs) it, it was so absurd it's i mean i can only look back on it and like see it with humor because it's so dark and absurd that is so dark that's one of the darkest (laughs) things i've ever i've ever heard i mean i hear a lot of shit doing this show but to give testimony to an impatient person while your legs are in stirrups yes and is yes and be and be like responsible for get like you said give testimony that's going on your record did he also ask you to hold his coffee while he wrote (laughs) i mean he may as well have no he didn't he just moved a garbage can in between us and was like uh if you need to keep throwing up just keep throwing up but i'm gonna go ahead and turn the recorder on and so that's what we did and i mean it i can i looking back on it i'm like i cannot believe that that was (laughs) how long did it take for you to be able to laugh about that oh god um because i would imagine you at some point you felt rage (laughs) yes okay (laughs) yes at some point i felt total utter complete rage when did you did you feel rage in that moment or did it no no i was so out of it i was so high and numb very numb and disconnected from many levels of disconnection that seems to be our body's protection mechanism and i also think the uh acting out sexually which a lot of people do uh after they've been sexually traumatized um that's another way to stay numb yes yes has that been your history um no i went into major like underground like i moved away from the city and like withdrew yes withdrew like i could not even drink alcohol for I think it was close to a year. I was so scared. It seems to go one way or the other with people that are either really promiscuous or completely withdraw sexually and socially. Yes, I I definitely um, have heard of that and uh, have read about that. And I think I believe in talking to other survivors, you know, have listened to them speak about that. It's, It's one of the reasons why I always encourage people who are dealing with compulsive sexual activity and have a history of trauma to Mm -hmm. get some type of support for Mm -hmm. the compulsive sexual activity Mm -hmm. because until you can unnumb yourself Mm -hmm. from compulsive behavior and could be cutting could be something else drinking yeah you will not be able to fully process the trauma that happened to you i know i know it's devastating that part is it's just and and yet you understand and like i have compassion for why one would stay in that state because who wants to go back through the trauma and the violence and the victimization and the terror i mean so the body is doing what you know it it is needing to do to survive Mm -hmm. and you really have to you know try to be 
I mean, you have to be in a place where you can deal with it. Some people don't deal with it for years. And I have no judgment about that because it's what they need to do at the time to survive. Yeah. To keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yes. Yes. There was something else I was going to ask you. Um, I I'd previously asked you to you you explain the thing about how you can be supportive mm-hmm. uh, for somebody, mm-hmm. and then I think I asked you um, when you first started to be able to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to? Would you like to talk about um, when you first got in, in touch with the anger after after this happened? When did that first? Mm. You know, um, or would you just like to go from no coming I'm, home from that and an arc of your experience in processing it? Sure, I, I either one. I I can talk briefly on the anger bit. Um, I would say it hasn't really ever like to be honest, like truthfully honest with you. The trauma of what has happened is nothing compared to the rage and the anger that I feel for law enforcement and San Francisco Police Department. That is where my rage lies. Isn't that, isn't that interesting how our... Because I'm when I read in a survey of a child who's being sexually abused and they go to the other parent and report it and that parent calls them a liar, I'm always more angry at that parent than I am at the person that sexually abused the kid. Right. And I guess it's because I, yes. I can almost understand that the perpetrator is in a sick haze of their compulsion. Sure. Whereas the other person is kind of, what's their fucking excuse? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it has not, that that has not let up. <laughs> it's literally, you know, and when I... And they're sworn. Yes. To do that. So yes. is a parent. So but. is a parent. Exactly. And as I hear more and more about untested rape kits being um, called out and coming coming into uh, reality hmm. at these police departments across the country, because my rapist is still on the loose. And you know who he is? No. He's still on the loose. So that means... Every time I hear about these untested rape kits or cities that are unwilling to look at their backlog or who have a backlog and sit on it, I'm like, that is a miscarriage of justice for me over and over and over again because we have the technology now so that the DNA from the unknown suspect, like, let's let's suppose that in the perfect world it was correctly processed at SFPD, which there's no even knowing. That goes into CODIS, which is our national um, database for DNA records. And then... I thought that was the uh, nephew on Andy Griffith. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like somebody who could live in... Come here, CODIS. What'd you do with the car keys? (laughs) 
it it needs something humorous like that tied to it because to hear that word just like you just see red but so it goes into this national data bank and base and and then it cycles around and it's constantly cross-referencing other criminals who come in and whose dna comes in to that um that database and this is how this is how serial rapists have been caught and um so the fact that you know we are spending money for the war on drugs and these kits are sitting untested and predators and rapists who I'm pretty sure there are several studies are known to rape over and over and again. I would imagine somebody that's drugging somebody. That's not a one time thing. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, let's talk about like Cosby. (laughs) He would be one. (laughs) I don't know what happened with him. (laughs) Oh my God. Did you hear about Darren Sharper too? No. Oh, he's, he were, he plays, I can't remember which team he plays for in the NFL, but same thing. He got away with it nine i think there are nine victims now drugged and drugged and raped and some of them reported and they never they never went after him they never test they never tested those kits and so you know he he got away with it all these years anyway um yes they they get more and more emboldened they get away with it and then they get more and more emboldened to keep doing it and perhaps even escalating with their violence um and so you know that is the anger and rage that at like i said this miscarriage of justice it's like why do you even why do we even say that rape is a crime in our country when there's 400,000 ignored rape kits that is telling a rapist i'm good to go like i'm 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 fine i can keep doing what i'm doing and probably get away with it for a lot longer we are going to uh, pause right here and give some love to our sponsor, Rooted. And uh, Rooted is a one-of-kind place dedicated to emotional wellness through the creative arts. It's in Chicago. And uh, just like you work out your body, uh, Rooted is a place where you can go work out your emotions on an ongoing basis. So you think of it, Rooted as the gym and the emotions and the creative arts are the weights. And I'm a huge believer in things like this. Um even though they're, this is the first of its kind in presenting it to the public, we all know occasionally doing it on our own helps us. You know, for me, I get it from woodworking or doing music or, you know, uh, performing comedy. But what I love about Rooted is it's, it's there like a gym so you can drop in anytime. Um, all kinds of creative arts. They have visual art, movement, drama, writing, music. Um, it's a way for you to express your emotions, learn about yourself. You can connect with other people who are doing the same thing, which is something I really, really love. And it's a judgment-free space. It's about the process. It has nothing to do with skill or producing anything and no experience is required. So come try a free self-care workshop at Rooted. It's offered every Sunday from 1 to 2.30 p.m. And uh, go sign up at the website website, which is rootedcenter.com. That's rootedcenter.com, R-O-O-T-E-D-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. And as I said before, it's in the Chicago area, and it's a great, great thing. Talk about the not knowing. That seems to me like just a horrible, horrible itch. Yes, it is a fucking purgatory. 
it's a fucking purgatory. I talk about that at the end of my show. Um, and I really line that right up next to the fact that the, the person who did the violence to me when I was a child, although I have tried to make contact with him and really have an adult conversation with him at this point in my life, because he's somebody who was very close to me and in my life a lot growing up he, he will not say yes he will not say no he will say he has just not responded and in it, order for me to move my life forward with this person i want some sort of confirmation so is this a, a relative yeah well no okay. it was my father okay so for that and this is in my play too, so it's okay. all very out there. Um, so to to have that um, grayness and no kind of closure, even though I've been so direct and spent years of my life working through that and getting to a place where I can could confront him and really do it in a way where we could have a conversation and perhaps even begin to meld mend something, mm -hmm. you know. To have that sit side by in, in this nothingness and no response and just, like I said, neither yes nor, nor no, just no contact in response to my request. To have that sit side by side with a, um, another violent act where the perpetrator is on the loose, unknown, and I have no recollection is so like i said it it's something it's like the worst deja the, vu yeah it's like the yes it's like the it's the enormousness the enormousness of the nothingness i wish i wish i could express to people who have never experienced sexual uh violation the importance details the important oh, how yes. intensely we look for details, and I th I think part of that is that we're so afraid that we're making something up or exaggerating something, or we were somehow at fault. We feel like if I she's vigorously shaking her head, yes, um, that that it would aid us almost like we need to build a case so we can understand whether or not we can our emotions are valid yes yes completely and, and to not have those no, is the worst it's the worst and when you're a child your defense or my defense mechanism was ex like these extreme levels of disassociation and really dealing with that again in my 20s and just realizing that i cannot function in the world in this these states and so it was really kind of like working grounding the those memories that when you're a child and you're disassociated they come and go in these very um you know um non-linear ways um because your you brain have is a in flash of an yes. image or a, yes and that something will touch you in a certain way and you re yes, recoil exactly and, yeah. exactly and it's a, it's been um so you d you don't have any concrete Oh, no, memories no, no. from childhood. No, I do have concrete memories oh. from childhood, but I'm saying that because of how they are processed, because there was violence and pain and trauma going on, that 
it gets stored in my memory like in this way that um like a drunk librarian kind of yeah <laughs> yeah and so to have all of the symptoms and be you know dealing really just pushing and press pressing that down throughout my um you know, just remembering, it was like remembering to forget, remembering to forget it, remembering to forget it so that it becomes just like clockwork as you may, as I made my way through high school. And once I graduated college, though, I just kind of collapsed. And then like all of that stuff started c coming up. And it was also significant because it was with, it, it went in tandem with a, a, you know, a relationship that um, just, it really, for whatever reason, really triggered that time during my childhood. Um, but yes, so the fact that that a similar type occurrence happened again was like fuck me. Like, like I'll, I've had, I just I, like die. I've had like, enough fuzzy. Yes, I've had enough haze. Yes, yes, it's the haze. That's why the play is called the haze because, um. You know, like you said, I just resonate so much in those months after um, the Bay to Breakers assault, spending so much time just perseverating. And I think that's why I wrote the fucking play was because these are the only memories I do have. And so I, you know, what has been distilled down into the play is nothing compared to the volume of writing that I have because it was like, I have to capture all of this because the, You're talking about the, the childhood actual, no, and no, no, adult, no, 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 just no, the adult, just the adult in the aftermath of, yeah. of the beta breakers assault. Mm. Like I have to capture all of these memories that I am having in the very recent time following it because this is all I have and if I don't if I don't write this down if I don't go over these details even of you know the waking moments where this person is screaming at me if I don't go over it over and over and over again then I really truly have nothing almost like it's smoke and you exactly got to photograph exactly. it while you can yes and trying to you know um glean from those memories that yes something horrible happened to you because it's somehow not enough to hear the doctor say this was a drug facilitated rape you have tears and bruises and etc cetera, etc cetera, because i have no memory of that so it was really you know obsessively perseverating like you said over those details so that it so that it could match with the level of of um like you said kind of PTSD and the shock and the trauma that you're experiencing. Yeah, and I think our brain has a way, too, of wanting to minimize what happened to us so we can avoid the truth that the world is kind of a scary place. Yes, yes. Completely agree. I completely agree with that. And it does it all different kinds of ways. All, all different kinds of ways. And that seem like the truth when we're when we're when it's a bad moment mm -hmm. you know yep yeah how awful is it for you when that event comes around every year oh my god <laughs> tell, Last year, tell the, tell the okay. listeners what kind of an event beta, okay. beta breakers is okay so beta breakers is um an annual 
uh, foot race in San Francisco. But a lot of people walk. Yes, it's been going on for over a hundred years, and basically, the beginning part of the race is a legit race. Like people. Come oh, I home. didn't know that. Yes. I just all I ever see is the moving party yes. part of it, which is just people in crazy outfits, some people completely naked, Na- just wasted. Some yeah, walking, running, some stumbling. Yes. Yeah, it just like be as outrageous as possible for how many miles? Oh yeah, is I it? call I call it. It's for. It's like a foot rate. It's like, I think it's 4K. It's not very long. It's a big party. The whole city shuts down and it's out of control. And I call it San Francisco's hetero pride. Like it's, it's just very frat kind of, uh, energy, frat boy energy, lots of drinking, lots of, um, lots of drugs and lots of, uh, really recklessness, carelessness, public urination, public, you know, defecating vomiting just a really the year that that this happened to me was probably one of the worst years and um what was your yeah so you know how many years ago did this happen this was five years ago almost so in the first couple years after this happened i just i couldn't even i left the city like i wouldn't be around and i still leave the city i think and then as the only way to deal with this darkness through is has been through humor with me last year i made myself um a happy rape anniversary cake (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you find that amusing Because fuck everyone else, and I'm still here, and fuck everyone else, and fuck SFPD. And, and it I, doesn't define your life. It's no. not who you are. It's something that it's something that happened to you. you yeah. Know? It's, no, I know. I like to think of it as like uh, a scar. You know, at first the scar you can't even touch it. It mm-hmm. just and all you can do is fucking look at it, and it absorbs all your attention. Right. And then pretty soon you can touch a little bit. Yeah, and then before you know it, it's just something that you have, right? And it's not painful anymore, but you're changed. Yes, yes, yeah. But you can still function. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, it's that being said, I will add to the point though, uh, just to the what the what I was talking to you about before about that there is this ongoing duress though because of the untested kits and because of the unknown of my rapist. So while yes, I move through my day and I, you know, I don't think about the, you know, the rape or whatever. Um, but that that person is still out there and that there are people that don't care to find him. Yes. Yes. Thank you. They don't give a fuck. And I it's have not interfa- that they even can't. They, it sounds like they don't, care they don't care no and they all showed up to my play and they all came and they all listened to me make fun of them and talk about the systemic failure of this um of of not giving a shit about this crime and you know they gave their money and donated their donations and then they went about their jobs and didn't care like you said which is i did this play to agitate for not only for the safety of myself because I am out on the streets, but for the safety 
of the city. You know, that's, you know, 2,000. Well, actually, I don't even really know the number. They said several thousand. Mm -hmm. That's several thousand rapists on the loose. What, in their mind, put yourself in their shoes. Mm Mm-hmm. What are what are they? Are they just saying there's just not money? We wish we could, but it's spent other places and it's out of our control. I think, um, I think that I honestly don't even know that they even think about it. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. I well, know. Let me, let me just play devil's advocate yeah, for a second because. Um, I just don't want that to be true. And and I believe in the goodness of, of most people. Right. I really do. Yeah, I okay. believe deeply in the goodness of most people. Right. And I know there are good people on the San Francisco Police Department. Right. And I know there have to be good people in the area that right. deals with victims of crimes like that. Yeah. It's very, it's really hard for me to, um, to give you an answer because is that really a, I it hope costs, that's not offensive for no, me to say that because no. I'm just I have to wrap my head around everything I have to try to wrap my head around everything right. and I'm just so having trouble I can believe that that would happen and then attention would be brought to it and people would rush to fix it you would yes one would think one and, would think I worked with media two years ago who and this media person jim o'donnell is was a god-given saint to me at the time because he followed up to get san francisco to even admit that they perhaps might have ignored rape kits in their property rooms was a whole you know um endeavor in and of itself and then jim o'donnell and i had to follow up with them and was mostly jim o'donnell following up with them week after week month after month saying have you audited have you tested have you audited they dragged their heels um and if it hadn't been for his consistent pressure of the media shaming and me shaming they i my sense is is they we would still they would have just tested my one kit and that was only because i wrote a fucking play and the woman who the audience members who happened in the audience members who happened to come to my play one of them was a politically connected socialite and she made a phone call and was like this is outrageous and then my kit was tested but just my one kit so it's really you know and I'll finish that is that Jim O'Donnell also in um, exposing San Francisco, he went he went farther than that. He exposed San Jose, Contra Costa County, Oakland um, or Alameda County. And then there have also been audits that have been done in all of California that include Sacramento, San Diego um, and one other county. They all came forward with their numbers and they're doing nothing like no funding is being put toward it. They're just sitting on them. So you would think that they would want to do the right thing. I guess you could say it's because of like they're just choosing not to allocate their funding toward it. Um, and, you know, there is not enough, I think, agitation from uh, people continuing to stay on it because these institutions, they 
are dealing with all other sorts of issues right now. Yeah, and bureaucra- bureaucracies <laughs> to seem to take the path of least resistance. Yes, exactly. So, so uh, I assume that there was no match. There was no match. Yeah. But at least you're in the system now. Yes, but... But I know, I know. But I'm just rooting for you right here for... Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Know. I am not even rooting for me, though. Like, if you can understand, because they're of the irregularities and these shady lab technicians that have been on staff, like, I don't even know that my kit was properly That's tested. Right. Yeah. Isn't that so fucked? <laughs> it's so, so fucked. And I'm only laughing at it because if I didn't laugh, I would... Pr- like, when I heard about this, I was tra- like re-traumatized in a state of disassociation and, like, utter shock for four days after learning this information which was just about a month ago and i had to go and perform my play and i was like this is my work that i'm doing and yet i am like still in it you know i did the work so that i could have some closure and yet the fucking thing keeps going (laughs) it's kind of like the universe chose you though don't you uh, don't you sometimes feel that way no no because i look at you and i and i and i feel like um you know, people that that uh, fight back. Well, that I am fighting back, and I guess. But you it, understand that most people don't have the energy or the balls to fight back. I do have balls to fight back. I've always been that person, you know, and also the outspoken, whatever class clown-ish type person. So. You know, I guess rape is just where it's at right now for me. And, you know, it's the thing is, is that it's so common, Paul. Like, it's so common. Rape it is was, the new Botox. Yes. Today I was like on Twitter linked in with like four other women who also have solo rape shows. So it's like <laughs> I just wrote out, I tweeted out. I was like, there should be a rape fest. Like there needs to be some sort of festival where every rape show, every solo woman who's like, you know, or every solo performer or who has you know experience something i do coin the market with the backlog issue because (laughs) mine's not really about my rape it's about the backlog so i will take credit for being the only one in the country right now with the backlog issue of my play (laughs) but there are so many rape plays (laughs) like there really should be a festival (laughs) talk about um there's Talk about how somebody who has been sexually traumatized mm-hmm. can take care of themselves from starting from the day after, starting from the minute after it mm-hmm. happens to however far down the road. Any mm-hmm. things that you've learned to to help yourself deal with things, yeah. obstacles to try to avoid um yeah i mean that's a really subjective res- um it's a very it's so subjective with you know, each talk person. about your experience then sure talk about what's um, helped you heal what's, okay so i'll talk about for me what's helped me i think having the um capacity for self-love and forgiveness that was something that took me 
a few years to not be in the side of this was your fault. And what what was the mean part of your brain telling you was your fault? Well, that day I had gone so t- leading up to that day um I had been in a relationship and um was living with a guy and had really been in sort of an isolated situation where you know he was many years older and was sort of set in his ways and I was in my 20s and um so I lived with this guy for a while and he was really great except that you know he I was in my 20s and I wanted to be out and you know being out and experiencing life at the same time I was dealing with going to through and dealing with a lot of the therapy and just in this place where it was just very contained and isolated and I wasn't going out much, but we parted, you know, we broke up and it was amicable. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go out and live my life. Like I have done a lot of work on myself. I feel really like in a much more stable grounded place. And so I'm, I'm going to start, you know, I'm saying yes. And so I am, I'm going to go to this Bay to Breakers, which I've never heard of before, or I've heard of, but I've never taken part of. And a lot of people are like, you have to go. It's a, such a San Francisco event. And so I went that day and I had, um, before I had gone out to uh, the race, I went to a friend's house there they were having brunch they were having drinks and you know I had a couple drinks that and when I got down there you know I was feeling really buzzed and um and I think I look back at that and I have never like it really wasn't until many years later that I was able to forgive myself for um for the drinking aspect because there's so there were so many fucking questions about the drinking and I had had a couple drinks. I was buzzed. So yeah, and it was very chaotic and crazy down there. The drink, we went to another party. I believe in my mind, that's where this guy started coming on to the scene. I received the drink from him and, you know, and then he was out of the scene and then he was back in the scene. And, but I, to this day, can't track that that indeed was a drugged drink and so so you don't know necessarily that that was the guy that drugged you no i there's so many questions in that exchange before i lost my you know consciousness Mm um that i really for many for several years was like well maybe for whatever reason you just blacked out from drinking too much for many for like eight hours despite you know the doctor saying this is a clear this looks to be you know despite vomiting you know up to 13 or 14 hours after I was last seen I could not forgive myself because in my mind I thought well if you hadn't had those two drinks before you weren't feeling kind of buzz you would have been more careful taking your drink at this party you would have followed and tracked where that drink went to endless the information your mean brain will come up with it's endless yes so that was like brutal I couldn't really even perform about that part of it 
I was just telling people, oh, um, yeah, I was... I was drugged, but I don't really know how. But then people's minds also go to that place because we want to blame um, and put some responsibility on the victim um, because it's really hard to uh, to digest or. Yeah, it's it's just very hard to think that some that people are out there doing these Mm -hmm. things. A big fear I had when I first started disclosing uh, the stuff that that my mom had done to me, when I would share it with somebody, was I would suddenly get this anxiety that they were going to not believe me, or they were going to ask me a question that insinuated that they didn't believe me. And she's nodding her head. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. 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 Talk about that. I Well, because I... um, started it was probably maybe a year after this had happened that i started doing these little vignettes about it um do you know w kamau bell Mm -hmm. he has in san francisco a solo performance uh workshop that he started and then he uh gifted it or bequeathed it to a woman named martha reinberg and i started doing um i started taking that class and started doing little vignettes and about about this and um i got a lot of questions uh, that really people really wanted to know the details of the incident and when the drugging happened um and every time it was it was really just having to uh, say like that is not up for discussion like did you if did I your was, anxiety if just I go was, through the roof yes, when that would happen? Oh yes. If I was if I was wasted that day, it still wasn't my fault. But at that point in time, I really couldn't I still was believing that it was my fault. So to hear someone start to like go on to that question, it's... I was just like, Oh my god, I maybe I shouldn't even be performing about this particular part <laughs> yet. I, I sp- cannot perform about this part yet. <laughs> when I speak about the stuff that happened to me in front of people. The la- actually, the last time I, I, I did it, um, my knees started shaking and my hands started shaking because I thought um, there are, uh, for some reason in my brain, I put people in the seats that were out to get me mm-hmm. and and thought about all the ammo that they're going to have and things that they're going to think. And then to not only would I not be you know, be a genuine survivor, I would be the worst person in the world because I would be exaggerating something or, you know, um, conflating things or whatever. And it just, it's, it's this back and forth and back and forth. And one minute I'm completely sure. And then the next minute I'm like, Oh God, I, I I know. Yes. Talk about your experience with that. Um, I mean, you just share certainly one thing. Um, sure. We're, 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 um, yeah, I think. Um, my sorry, say say that again. My experience with the, your, your experience, the back and forth. Yeah, with the the back and forth between the yeah. mean part of your brain and oh, and yes. the healed yes okay growing sure. mature part of you sure. that is advocating for yourself. Sure, you know, yeah, you talked really, about self love being an important thing, which I'm so glad you mentioned. Self compassion in the wake of trauma is the most important thing, and patience with the process. Patience with the process. I think it really 
you know, I would go to these therapy sessions with my God bless her therapist who's been through it all with me. And in the aftermath of this, listen to her sell me like it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And still and like nod my head and cry a little bit and then leave and go, well, it still is my fault. You know, like and uh, your brain says you're paying her. Of course, she's going to yeah. say that. That's what, that's what that's my my brain always says. <laughs> Oh, your brain never came, your brain never came up with that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's so good. That's so. Rich. I'm a little disappointed in the mean part of your brain that it missed that. The, I gotta say, the mean part of your brain is also dumb. Yes. <laughs> you have a dumb, oh mean part God. of your brain. How did it miss that? Oh my God! No, it really wasn't until hearing other people talk about being raped while they were wasted and my outrage at thinking so like and you're blaming yourself what you can say to them but not to yourself isn't that crazy yes it's fucking crazy it's fucking crazy and i had only had a few drinks like i was definitely buzzed down there i read my police report recently it was like i had a you know and i remember checking back with my friends and they were like no you had you know we weren't tracking you but none of us were wasted heading down there we'd all had a couple drinks and it was a you know it was like a pre kind of let's head out um but yeah, even to hear somebody, you know, you hear about these horrible, like, rapes that have gone on on these campuses where the girls are just plastered, hammered, drunk. And um, I am out, like, I'm absolutely, it's a drug in and of itself, mm -hmm. whether you imbibed it or, you know, um, or you were given it because rapists also know to keep giving the drinks. Mm -hmm. Um, it's never okay. And there is a great uh, YouTube video now by, I can't remember her name, her first name, but her last name is Akana. And she does- Anna, Akana, yeah, Anna. she's been a guest. Oh, she has. Yeah, oh, yeah. awesome. Okay, so she just did, um, she just did a great video that was- Her stuff's great. Her stuff is awesome. Yeah. And it was just about like, how, you know, she's just calling out um, this idea that we need to teach- women all the time all the time how not to get raped whether it's wearing you know your nail polish whether it's um uh you know taking self-defense classes all of these preventative measures whether it's like watch your drink by you know like mm -hmm. i said touching your like roofie detecting nail polish like how about teaching like she says at the end young men and young boys that it is not an option and that you know has been it's a it's a double-edged sword because there's still fucked up people out in the world you know and after this happened to me i am like now forever on the like on on the hyper in the hyper vigilant mode so it's really um h hard to kind of draw that line but in terms of the drinking like i just um 
I forget what we were talking about because I went off on Anna. Um, <laughs> in 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 healing. Oh um, yes, and the, things that you can do for yourself, uh, right. obstacles you can try to avoid. Right, right. Well, it's not as preventative measures, but just in terms of of your own uh, healing yes, yourself. Yes, yes. And, and it was really just forgiving myself for like, yes, you had a couple drinks. You were going out because you had been in this place where I wasn't barely even drinking. Like I didn't even really drink that much. I had you know this equivalent amount with my ex-boyfriend and so you know i was out with friends doing the same thing so you know uh, a therapist shared with me when i was going through one of those you know i'm a i'm an exaggerator i'm whatever and she stopped me and she said paul i have had she she said everybody tries to minimize it and she said i've had patients Mm -hmm. clients whose parents used them in pornography where there was bondage and they still said but there are other people that have it worse than me i shouldn't complain and that really helped me because i went okay this is a thing the brain does right when i heard that right i that that really really helped me right yeah i i um i can see that totally i do you, you feel know. like the mean part of your brain is is uh, at least in terms of this event mm-hmm. and your handling of it mm-hmm. do you feel like it's it's now in the back seat and quiet yes yes i you know i really um i'm very i'm very forward with um the fact that there was drinking involved at this event that is pure drinking and i think about all of the wasted people, much more wasted people out there that day who didn't get raped, that were out, you know, and made it through the day without getting raped, you know. Naked? Naked. Tons of naked people (laughs) in beta breakers. Yes. Tons. Yes, tons of naked. I mean, it is a free-for-all. And it, like, so I'm able to say to myself, you know, um, this was an act of violence that was premeditated by somebody who didn't probably care. I mean, I was wearing, to my credit, you know, I got the victim blaming what were you wearing shit. I was wearing... Did you really? Oh, yeah. Who who did that? I mean, you don't have to name names, but... Um, it was a mentor at the time. <laughs> oh, this is the person you cut contact with? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yes, it was a mentor and... um. I think she was the main person, but um, to my credit, I was in a fucking muumu. Like, I was in a big, billowing purple muumu. So, like, these kinds of predators don't give a fuck what you're wearing, no. what you, you know, they are like, I see someone, I target them, I get, I, I'm opportunistic with the moment, and there we go, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's really it's really kind of having to like like I said in learning and in hearing these stories and feeling such compassion and out and simultaneous outrage for these other rape victims who have been completely intoxicated or wasted um I at some point was able to say can you really let that in for yourself? Can you really like let this go? That that um wasn't a reason yes this was that it was never a reason to do this that that there's no excuse not even a shred no not even a shred yeah ever 
I would imagine you have had more than a few people break down and just hug you and cry and thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's pretty interesting because um, being out on these call, like touring at these call on college campuses, um, you really do. And you really do hear a lot of stories um, from younger women. When I performed in San Francisco, the audience members who came, the theater audience, because mm -hmm. I did it at American Conservatory Theater, they were much older. And so they were like, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Like, the, everyone's like really hardened. But there's like, yeah, that happened to me. Like, yeah, it happened to me. Happened my, to me. my rape kit was with a stone and a chisel. Yeah. <laughs> And they used this a sundial. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they had to wait until the sun was setting. Exactly. <laughs> Spread your leg a little more to the east. There yeah. we go. Okay, hurry, chisel. Exactly. Yes, they're like you were afforded like a rape kit, like yeah. that. You know, I was just sent away and told it was my fault. You know, like yeah. so. There has been like glacial paces forward for this crime, but these young women who are still like they're so young they are so vulnerable in terms of what they are um sharing because i think oh, it's such a like shit show on the campus college campus rape right now that they have tried every which way to try and bring a sense of closure and justice and it's still um it's, the circus is still in town. Yes, the circus is still in town, as it is for me. But I'm, I, I just, I don't know. There's something about having a little more life experience. I mm -hmm. think that is, and I was lucky enough that this didn't happen to me in college. That um, I have heard them, and I, it's really, I have heard these stories from these younger women, and it's very hard not to stay in, want to stay in touch with them because there is so. When you have been fucked by raped and then fucked over again in the criminal justice system or by your university, there's very little places to turn, like in terms of um, somebody of support. I mean, all these women are getting are in therapy and stuff, but to that end, they, you know, they have all like me when I was trying to get my rape kit processed, I started reaching out to these larger uh, violence coalitions like um end the backlog or no more or rain and they have all all these women have found out too that a lot of these organizations they are very good for awareness but in terms of direct services as much as you see their name when you look up this issue they are not a resource for like if you have questions about how you want to move your case through, forward through the system. Yes, yeah. through the system, they are they are not there for that, and so they're more about healing and yeah, and just sort of getting like having the conversation and you know getting the word out there. But in terms of agitating the criminal justice system, which is where a lot of mm -hmm. these women who have come forward, because my story is about the criminal justice system fucking me over, then I hear a lot from women who have experience this as well there's very little places to turn you know because um these organizations don't really deal with that they and so i would call it like this sort of 
underground railroad network of women that like there are Facebook groups, you know, where, you know, they're that women dip in and out with their questions about like, hey, I'm seeking legal counsel and I am doing X, Y and Z. Has anybody dealt with this particular aspect of it? And um you know, people are, it's just like this network of women who are, and a lot of young college women who are trying to like find the terrain to have a sense of justice or closure or um, the next steps so that they can move their, you know, their cases forward. As if they don't have enough on their plate. I know. It's, they are so young. Some of these women are like 20. Some of them are, you know, 19. It's, I just in your formative years and having this happen mm -hmm. and then having no uh, again miscarriage of justice on your college campuses in these universities it's really it's it's really something. Yeah, you know, I would just stress again find people that do care. Yes. And surround yourself with those and cut people out they at have least lost so many friends. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, they, you may have to lose best. friends. Yeah. For you, the better. To heal, you may, you will probably have to at least temporarily yep. um, lose, lose contact with some people. And Definitely. that's okay. Definitely. You, allow yourself, allow yourself that. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else you'd like to share? Um, no. What's the website for, uh, stuff you do um, so it's www.thehazeplay.com okay and i would imagine there are going to be a few uh, more than a few people that are going to email me and say i, I want to connect oh yeah with heather can you put me in contact with her it's okay if uh, i forward their emails to you sure yeah. yeah i'll ask them before um yeah definitely i i'm I like I said, the Underground Railroad is open for business. <laughs> wow, you're awesome. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we got in contact with each other. Yeah. I think a listener suggested uh, a listener in San Francisco might have read uh, an article uh, about you and uh, said that uh, oh. that I should contact you. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've been on the battle lines with the fucking city. Wow. <laughs> well. Keep doing what you're doing, and I love that you have not lost your sense of humor through any of this. That's, oh, yeah. I would not be in this still if there was, if I didn't have a sense of humor. It's too dark to not. Is there anything better than a dark joke with when you're going through something like that? It's, no, it's the no, fucking best. It's, it's the fucking best. It's the fucking agreed, best. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Thank Mar you so much for having me. Heather Marlowe, thank you. All right. Oh man, do I I just love a good laugh with a guest. It's it is the best. That and a good awful some moment are are just Christmas Christmas to me. Um or what I imagine people must feel that enjoy Christmas. Before I take it out with some surveys and emails, uh, I want to remind you that there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website, uh, mentalpod.com, and um, just click on the donate button there, and you can make either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation that helps keep the show uh going forward, helps keep it supported, and I uh, greatly, greatly depend on those of you who uh, who do support it, it uh, means the world to me. You can uh, be a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It's super easy to, to set up, and then you don't have to worry about it at all. Uh, you can also support us uh, by shopping at Amazon through our search portal. 
And that way Amazon will give us a couple of nickels when you buy something and it doesn't cost you anything. And you can also support us by um, non-financially, by going to iTunes, writing something nice and giving us a good rating or uh, spreading the word through social media, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, whatever all you you kids are up to, whatever your new your new app is on your smartphones. Um, wanted to give you an update. I've been, uh, depression-wise, been doing really well. Been putting some great days together and um, feeling as good as I've felt in a, in a long time. And it's really, really fucking nice. Um, let's get to the surveys. Enough of my yakking. Actually, this is a lot more of my yakking. Uh, this is... Struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Pooh Budinsky. And about her anxiety, she writes, knowing I'm going to be sucker punched, but not knowing when or by whom. And then a snapshot from her life. She writes, I thought uh, taking a long drive down the Pacific Coast Highway at night and getting out to walk on the beach and hear the waves would be a great way to clear my head and find some perspective, let go of some tension and worry. I got there, sat on the steps leading down to the water and tried to just breathe and listen to the waves crashing on the shore. But an odd flickering light in the distance up the road convinced me that the cops had seen my car parked and were waiting to arrest me when I went back to it. So my anxiety about that pretty much took over my ability to be soothed or quieted in any way. Why I'd be arrested, I don't know. But I always feel like I'm doing something, quote, wrong. Our brain. Oh, the mean part of our brain. This is a uh, from the va- Vacation Argument survey, which I love. And uh, this person wrote, When I was on a vacation to ski with my girlfriend three years ago, we ended up arguing about how long a person has to not throw a snowball during a snowball fight for it to be considered a forfeit. This actually made both of us blow up, and we ended up leaving two days earlier than expected. Fantastic. This is filled out by a guy uh, who calls himself Simeon, and it's a struggle in a sentence. And uh, he has social anxiety, and he writes, I don't know how to naturally socialize. I can force it, but I despise small talk and don't understand how to initiate a conversation. I've been told that I'm just someone with a very high IQ, and as a result, I don't know how to think like other people. I'm incredibly lonely, but despite being generally cordial with people, I don't know how to sustain a relationship with anyone. For me, because I also hate small talk and sometimes I have anxiety in social situations, the best tip I ever got was just ask people questions about themselves. And it's one question leads to another and before you know it, there's a natural flow to it and you've done your part. You know, if that other person just clams up and doesn't say anything, hey, you've you've kept your side of the street clean. So um, that works for me. And before you know it, they'll be asking you questions about yourself and uh, you'll be telling them to uh, fuck off and quit being so nosy. And uh, then you'll get in a snowball fight. This is an email from... um, I'm not sure how this person wanted to be referred to, so uh, I'm just going to withhold their name. But uh, they write, I wrote to you about six months ago regarding my benzodiazepine dependency and how much I'd like to hear a show about it. I've been tapering for about six months now and it's been tough, but I'm down to about 60% of my original dosage. 
Um, I've looked around a lot and there's very little support for people battling with benzo addiction, particularly for those who became dependent accidentally. The best resource I've found is benzobuddies.org and I'd like to share that with you so you might be able to share it with other listeners or put it on your get help section. Thank you for that. This is an email I got from uh, Kelly and she writes, uh, it occurred to me that your listeners could benefit from hearing from evidence-based alternative health practitioners, not quacks. I'm talking about individuals who really dig into the science to treat the root cause of illness, not just the symptoms. And I heartily agree. She writes, uh, speaking from, or it might be he, I'm not sure. Speaking from my own experience, I've been able to de-escalate my depression, which I've been living with since childhood, by healing my gut supporting my thyroid, and eliminating food allergies. It's been huge for me. I want other people to know this is an option to add into their self-care. When I hear your guests, particularly those who are in chronic pain, suffering from autoimmune issues, I get antsy. I want to know if they've, they've at least tried eliminating grains and dairy for 30 days. I might sound like the paleo police or the gluten Gestapo. I'm not saying cut out bread and you'll be on the happy train, just that in addition to meds and therapy, simple dietary tweaks could make massive improvements in your listeners' lives. I humbly suggest inviting someone like Dr. I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, Dottis Karazian, Chris Kresser, Dr. Terry Walls, or Paul Jaminet to share some non-dogmatic and non-med shaming concepts about the modern diet and human health. Thank you very much for that, Kelly. Um, a very profound book that helped me with uh, really, really low energy was a book called The Body Ecology Diet. And um, yeah, this is an email from Becca. And she writes, I just listened to the most recent show with Anna David and there was a lot of talk about bad therapists. I just want to say that when I needed to get into therapy, I went to three different ones for an initial consultation before choosing the one that seemed to work for me and then parentheses, the one that made me cry. Uh, I know going to therapy can seem like a big hurdle to some folks, but at the end of the day, you are paying them, and you can be as picky as you want, and there's no obligation to stick with the first person you see. Hardly agree. This is from the Being Hospitalized survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself T. And uh, the reason she was hospitalized... uh, She writes, all my hospitalizations were psych-related and basically because I was super depressed and the people all around me were afraid for my safety. And um, I'm just going to fast forward through it. Uh, She had a couple of uh, bad stays in her uh, teens. And then she writes, so many times I had to lie about how I was feeling because some people don't understand that feeling suicidal 24-7 is different than having plans to act on the urges. I get that it's a hard place for a professional to be in because they have to cover themselves. But as a patient who feels like everyone else is ganging up on them, it feels like you have absolutely no power in any part of your life. I would constantly lie and say I was fine when all I wanted to do was talk about how much I was hurting. It was like a punishment for being honest to be put in this place where you get abused in parentheses, in my prior experience, and have no freedoms. One time I was hospitalized and I had the best moment in my life. Uh, I passed out after getting blood drawn and smacked my head on the stone, on the stone floor, and I felt the most peace I ever have in my life, but then I realized where I was. 
There needs to be a better way of using the psych ward that is not a punishment because that is so counterproductive and so not 2015. I've been in the hospital or treatment facility. I haven't been in the hospital or treatment facility in three years, so something worked, although it certainly wasn't the hospital or the fear of the hospital. Now I just feel that if I ever get to a really dark place again, I'm not going to tell anyone because I'm afraid of the consequences, and I know it shouldn't work like that. The experiences I've had definitely made it not a safe place, which is unfortunate. Thank you for adding your your experience to uh, to the pile. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Vicky G. She uh, is in her 20s, uh, identifies as asexual, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, She writes, the first time was with my first boyfriend. We were verbally fighting, then everything turned very calm, so he kissed me. Then he unbuttoned my pants and I told him that I was too young to have sex. At first he tried to reason with me. He told me it was okay because we were in love. But after seeing that I wasn't going to change my mind, he told me that he was going to fuck me no matter what. He said I could say yes and he would make me a woman or I can say no and it will be rape. Then he would have to kill me. Then he whispered, please don't make me kill you. So I said, yes. The first thrust hurt so much, so I asked him to wait a second so I can wrap my mind around what was going to happen. He held me down with one arm and covered my mouth with his free hand. At one point, he uncovered my mouth to pull my hair because I was trying to get away. When he was done and we were putting on our clothes, he asked me how I felt. I told him, like a woman. That is so heavy. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Uh, a guy held the door open for me. My first boyfriend became so jealous that he tied me to the bottom of the bed and beat my back with his belt. He said that I had to be disciplined because I was being a bad girlfriend. My first boyfriend would make me repeat these words. I am ugly, fat, stupid, and worthless. Darkest thoughts. I'm ashamed that I think about all of the people that hurt me. I just want to pretend like it never happened. I'm also ashamed of all the people that I hurt because I was trying to deal with my feelings of being hurt. I'm ashamed that I thought of taking my first boyfriend's and my life. Darkest secrets. My boyfriend sold me to this older guy when I was 14. At first, I knew that I was not going to sleep with the guy, and the guy didn't want to directly force me, so my boyfriend beat me until I said I would sleep with the guy. When I slept with the guy, I felt guilty because I liked it. My boyfriend was the only other guy I sleep with, slept with at the time, and he really sucked at sex. But this guy was really good, so it confuses me because I still don't know how I feel about it. How can I say he did something wrong if I liked it? That is a great question, and it is possible for something to be absolutely wrong and to still get some physical pleasure out of it. It's a lot what a lot of people who are molested or raped experience. And it's one of the things that makes it so hard for them to come forward. Um, makes them feel guilty, makes them feel like they had a part in it. All the stuff that Heather and I talked about. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I sometimes think that I need to be overpowered when I'm having sex. It makes me feel like I suck at life. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my parents but I'm afraid they will only see me as a slut. What, if anything, do you wish for? I don't think I have any wishes. Have you shared these things with others? I shared one thing with one of my friends, but other than that, no, because I don't want anyone to see me as a victim. Um, How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like my life had some pretty sucky moments. Sending you some love and letting you know that you can heal. 
but um, you gotta you gotta open up. And I know it's fucking scary. It's so scary. But therapists are great people to start start off with, or a safe friend. This is a happy moment filled out. It's very brief, filled out by a woman who calls herself Dirty Laundry. And uh, her happy moment, she writes, is warm sand angels after being in the ocean. The non-OCD part of me loves that. The OCD part of me is like, that is horrible. That's a 15-minute shower. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by John. um, Or actually, he calls himself John, who could have been a contender. He is... See, this is a long one. He is gay. He's in his 30s. He was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, when I was about eight, a 14-year-old that lived across from my dad's house was the only kid in the neighborhood that would be my friend. Uh, I was over the moon to have a friend, any friend, even if he was almost double my age. One day we were at his house in the basement and he asked me to wrestle. My dad, brothers, the dog, and I used to have epic wrestling battles all the time, so I thought nothing of it. I agreed. He said we had to make rules about pants pulling. I was confused. He said, well, whoever loses has to pull their pants down. I froze. He saw that I was scared and said, never mind, you'll get the hang of it. Don't be scared. Let's wrestle. So we started wrestling, normal rough housing, nothing weird, and I lost. Oh shit, now I have to pull your pants. Pull down your pants, he said. I said I didn't want to. He said I couldn't come over anymore if I didn't, and then offered by way of making things fair that I could pull his down too. Do it or you can't come over anymore. So I did it. He pulled mine down and I pulled his down. I honestly don't remember if anything more happened than that, though I vividly remember that his dick was big, which I now know is fully hard and very hairy, none of which I had ever seen before since I lived at my mom's and was very confused and kind of terrified by. I also remember being aroused by it, which I've never told anybody until now. At any rate, his mom opened the door to bring us snacks and then abruptly about-faced. I'm certain she saw something, and the kid said I should go home. The one thing I've always remembered, even before I recalled any of the actual details, is that when I got home, it was like my stepmother knew something had happened. She seemed rattled the minute I came in and said she didn't want me hanging around with that kid anymore. I must have given off a vibe or something, which makes the whole thing seem all the more, I don't know, strange and sad and weird. Uh, My thought is that his mom called your mom and said something. Uh, continuing, the way I feel about all of this is a strange mix. On one hand, the sting of that betrayal has always stuck with me, as has the viv- vivid memory of that cock in his pants. I've seen that cock in my head during sex a million times, even before I even knew what that memory was. It would flash through my head while I'd be with a guy and I'd think, the fuck is that about? Whose cock is that? Why am I thinking about it? I also felt a lot of shame and disgust at how aroused I was by that cock. I'd like, uh, I'd like to say cock a couple more times. Uh, sometimes I still am if it goes across my mind. I've gotten over the shame now, but not really the disgust. For the longest time, because I was raised by religious nut jobs, I thought that kid made me gay. And I used to fantasize about going back to his house and telling his mother her son fucked kids and finding him and killing him or beating him up or sometimes raping him. And then I'd feel destroyed that I was capable of thinking such horrific things. Now, though, I mostly just feel incredibly grateful that it didn't go any further than it did, as insane as that probably sounds. It could have been so, so much worse. 
Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if his mom hadn't opened that basement door. I was so desperate for a friend, especially because my dad's house was a very unhappy, conflict-ridden place. I think I would have eventually done anything that kid asked me to. There was another incident in adulthood. I hooked up with a guy in a hotel who was extremely good-looking, way out of my league. I blew him, and it started out normal enough, but quickly turned into him holding me down and fucking my mouth slash throat and not in a good way. He was doing it so hard I couldn't get any leverage to get away, and I was too scared to try to fight him off because I felt like he might hurt me. Uh, Reprisal for him being willing to fuck someone so much uglier than him and me being so ungrateful. He got off down my throat, which I didn't give him permission to do, and then invited me to stay longer so he could fuck me. No pressure or anything, he said, suddenly this nice nurturing guy. It was fucking, uh, I was fucking terrified, so I left. I ended up wandering around downtown in a total daze for hours, bumping into people and walls and shit. I honestly think my brain went somewhere else for a while. I had choked and gagged on his cock so so hard so many times for so long that my entire abdomen, throat, and jaw muscles were so sore I could barely stand to eat for like two days. Even my diaphragm felt like I had bench-pressed 250 pounds with it. I've never told anyone about this. That is so heavy, and um, uh, that is just so heavy. That is so heavy. Um, He's been emotionally abused, um, naturally. We don't have enough time to cover this. Suffice it to say, uh, I think at the time my mother yelled, you little shit, while hurtling a remote at my head pretty much daily. I tend to stay away from Buckingham Fountain in Chicago, lest I relive my father's foot launching me into a face plant into the gravel in front of it. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes and yes. And once I worked through the complicatedness of it, Uh, I've had to come to terms with the fact that the amount of abuse overwhelmingly outweighs the amount of pleasantness to the extent that the pleasantness almost becomes beside the point. Darkest thoughts. I've thought of killing both of them. I've never admitted this because it's horrifying, but I've thought of raping my mother. We haven't spoken in three years, and I sometimes think about breaking into her house in the middle of the night and holding her hostage until she apologizes. I think about sending her letters full of the most hateful things I frankly have every right to say, but never would because I won't stoop to her level. But I know they would destroy her, and sometimes I want that. I've thought of killing my brother, who also abused me too, holding him at gunpoint and making him beg for his life almost drowning him in his swimming pool over and over. When I've been suicidal, I've often thought of doing it at my mother's house, tying her to a chair and making her watch me do it. Terrible fucking things, man. My brain is fucked. Buddy, everybody's brain feels fucked to them. If you if you just knew how... If you could just see the film playing in everybody else's head... Uh, Anyway, continuing, um, Darkest Secrets. I used to play uh, Let's Pretend games to an extent that I sometimes wonder was dissociative. When I was a little kid, I used to pretend I was a girl and dress up in my mother's clothes. For a while, as an adult, I wondered if I might be transgender, but I've since realized it was not about that at all, and rather about wanting my parents to be... uh, 
my parents to like me. My mother seemed to hate men, and all daughters are daddy's girls, so there you go. Plus, like all nascent gay boys in the 80s, I wanted to be Madonna, so it was a step closer. Uh, I was home alone a lot from a very early, far too young age, and I was terrified of being home alone, and that was how I coped, dressing up in my mother's clothes and pretending to be a girl named Allison. It's heartbreaking. Oftentimes, this play would become sexual, especially after the incidents of sexual abuse happened. I also used to wet my pants on purpose a lot. I figured out how to use the washer slash dryer so my mom wouldn't know. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Two contrasting ones. Number one, making slow love on a beach with my soulmate. Uh, so cheesy. I don't think that's cheesy. Uh, two, a kind of raunchy locker room circle jerk. Sharing them makes me feel embarrassed and also sad, especially the first one because it seems like a pipe dream, so to speak. What, if anything, do you wish for? And by the way, uh, congratulations on uh, being the first one to mention, mention uh, a circle jerk. I can't believe it. Four years. And I don't think uh, that has ever appeared in the, uh, in the sexual fantasies. I would have thought that that would be uh, a lot more common. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? Love and the ability to pay my rent doing what I love. I have other hopes and wishes, of course, but I could do fine with just those basic things. Beyond that, I'd like success, not just survival, but success and a family, by which I don't mean kids, but parents and siblings that love and connect with me since my own family has estranged themselves from me. I imagine this being in-laws. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? Embarrassed, sad, refreshed, and relieved. Well, buddy, I can tell you, a support group, you will get to feel the refreshed and relieved and sometimes sad and embarrassed. Um, oh, I think you would thrive, thrive in a support group. You sound like you really have a big, big heart and um, you sound like a really beautiful, sensitive man. I'm sending you some love, whether you fucking want it or not. This is a happy moment um, filled out by uh, our friend, uh, oh, for fuck's sake. And her happy moment, she writes, uh, when I was little, um, oh no, there's two. This is the second one. Uh, she writes, I've lived my whole life in Florida. I've seen flurries and snow on the ground, maybe four to six inches deep. But my wonderful husband and I were in Boulder, Colorado for training and starting our new business. It snowed 18 inches in a 24-hour period. When it first started, I thought something was on fire because I thought it was ashes floating in the air. I had never seen real flakes of snow. After that day's training, we walked the 18 blocks back to the little apartment we were staying at. We could have taken the bus, but we were having too much fun. We dropped off our stuff and went back out to play it in it for another two hours. We would shake tree branches full of snow over each other's head, covering us in the beautiful white. We would take pictures as it was falling. The flash would reflect the snow, making it look like little stars falling. I felt like I was inside the Christmas village I put up in our house every year. It was a magical night, all that fresh, beautiful snow, and us starting a new adventure with our new business. It was unforgettable. I was smiling so much and giggling so much my face hurt. Oh, I love that. I love when you guys share a moment and you just paint such a beautiful, detailed picture. I... This is a shame and secrets survey filled out by um, Transistor, who is uh, gender fluid. And uh, Transistor let's see, is 
pansexual, 19, raised in a totally chaotic environment, and they write, um, and uh, transistor was sexually abused and never reported it. And um, they write, when I was 13, I was almost always online. I was a timid and shy kid who didn't have many friends. I fell into an internet forum, and there I began talking to a lot of people I thought I could call friends. I was pretty mature for my age, but everyone knew I was only 13. I never kept it a secret. One of the admins took a liking to me, and I did too. I wasn't used to getting attention, and it felt good. He asked me out, and I said yes. He was 20. It was an online relationship, and I always feel pathetic saying that. Regardless, he was very, very possessive and always horny. We had phone sex constantly. I was a promiscuous 13-year-old, and I always did it willingly. I sometimes think my crippling self-consciousness, as I never caved into it, I, oh, I sometimes thank my crippling self-consciousness, as I never caved into his demands for nudes. Everyone on the forum knew we were, quote, dating. Not one person ever voiced any concerns for me. I feel so much contempt for all those people, so much older than I was, who let this happen to me. The icing on the cake was when I dumped him for his best friend, another 20-year-old. He turned everyone on the forum against me, called me a whore, and said I was banned. For most people, this wouldn't have been a big deal, but to a lonely kid like me, my world shattered, thankfully. Uh, I had my new pedophile boyfriend to cheer me up. Um, by this time, I was 14 and he was turning 22. We talked all the time. We played games together. We had phone sex. We made each other laugh, comedy being very important to me. I feel awful saying it, but this was the most fulfilling relationship I'd ever had. We dated for a year until I had a breakdown and dumped him. He was angry at me, of course, and we stopped talking. I had precious few friends left. Then he started dating my former best friend. She was 19. He was 23. They are still dating to this day. I never realized I was, I was dating two pedophiles. I feel so much anger and hatred for the people who knew how young I was, who never put a stop to it. Looking back on it, almost six years later, I cry for that lonely teenager. Uh, why did no one help me? I am still banned from that forum. Everyone there still hates me. My ex-boyfriends rekindled their relationship. I am still alone. Well, first of all, why would you want to go back to that forum? They're sound like dicks um, uh, to the question have you ever been emotionally abused uh, I don't want to share it my father is just an awful man if he didn't make all the money in the family I would have killed him any positive experiences with your abusers my boyfriends made me feel good they always told me they loved me that I was awesome they made me feel like I mattered uh, what are your darkest thoughts and by the way if you're thinking to yourself that they were lying to you so they could manipulate you. It doesn't, the fact that they are liars and manipulators doesn't mean that you are awesome. It doesn't mean that you're not awesome and that you, how, how can I say this? The truth is, is you do matter and you are awesome. And it doesn't matter that it came it's not negated by the fact that it once came out of the mouths of liars. That's what I was trying to say. Uh, darkest thoughts. I have 
many fantasies about being raped, especially by much older men. I often go on anonymous chat sites to have phone sex with them. I've considered charging. I'm very good at it. I also have a misogyny fetish. It really hurts me inside because I'm a feminist. I'm a very positive, non-judgmental person. But I want to hear men tell me I belong sucking their cock, that I'm not good for anything because I'm a woman. I want them to call me a pig and abuse me. Blah. I feel dirty just typing that. Darkest secrets. I cannot stop. And you know, my thought as I read that thing is um, uh, I'm not judging anybody who does the, the pay chat sites and stuff, but I think that might be an unhealthy way, an unhealthy thing for you to do before you heal from the stuff that's happened to you. Um, if you did go and do it, I think it would just be a way of distracting yourself and numbing yourself, um, soothing yourself sexually. Um because that's a really common thing. Uh, darkest secrets. I cannot stop. I cannot stop stalking old friends. I look up every scrap of information I can dig up from the internet. I'm pretty good at it too. I found people's private Reddit accounts. I go through every post on their blog. I have breakdowns when I go through my ex's stuff, but I can't stop. It hurts knowing they are leading prolific lives when I can barely function. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The misogyny fetish along with objectification. Basically being just a sex toy. What if anything do you wish for? I wish my father um, loved me. I wish my mother wasn't insane. I wish my brother wasn't ashamed of me. I wish I had a dog. Above all else, I wish I was pretty. Have you shared these things with others? I don't talk about my pedophile boyfriends or how I think I'm disgusting. I talk about a lot of present personal things on my own ranting blog. No one reads it, though. It's more of a journal. I don't talk about myself with others. It's too hard. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with anyone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I love you. You are worth it. It's not your fault. I would love for you... This sounds so fucking cheesy, but would love you to go. If you're listening to this, I would love for you to go to the mirror right now and look in it and say, I love you. You are worth it. It's not your fault. And if you do do that, email me and let me know what you felt. Or tell me to go fuck myself. I haven't done that in a while. This is an awful moment. I love this name. Filled out by a woman who calls herself the best exotic unemployed screenwriter. And uh, she writes, I am the lone atheist agnostic in a very spiritual, mostly Catholic family. My mom literally doesn't believe in coincidences. If she has a dream where an old friend makes a cameo and then gets a call from them a couple days later, it's divine intervention. Uh, if she hears a certain song on the radio, her father guided the DJ's music selection from heaven. If she sees a penny on the sidewalk, God dropped it. So it's her theory that my depression and lack of faith is due to the fact that I believe too much in coincidence and don't actively look for signs that God's trying to communicate with me. It's well-meaning, but ultimately misguided of her, and in my opinion, uh, just an excuse to keep her from actually getting educated about my mental illness. So the other day, I was washing my car when I noticed that a piece of paper was blowing around in the wind several blocks from where I was standing on the other side of the street. We're talking like a football field away. So I said to myself, if this piece of paper miraculously makes it all the way to me, 
I'll accept whatever it says as a message from God. So I watch it float down the sidewalk for a while. Then it randomly cuts diagonally across the street and lands right on top of my feet. So I pick it up, the side facing me is blank, and turn it around. It says in big black letters, regular trash. I laugh. I told my mom about what happened. She brushes it off as a coincidence and says anything negative just doesn't count. I'm putting it up on my bulletin board as a reminder to stay humble. And if there is a God, he's kind of just your average dick with a cruel sense of humor. (laughs) Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Get Paid, Get Laid, Gatorade. I think we've read a survey from her before. She is bisexual, 23 years old, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, This was a long while ago, so I don't remember everything too well, but when I was somewhere between five and six, my older cousin would molest me. I know it happened for years, almost every time I went to their house in a different state than my family lived. I would be playing with my younger cousins, his siblings, downstairs, and he would take me upstairs, lock the door, and strip me naked. He would then get naked and put me on top of his body. I remember things happening, but I don't remember specifically. Uh, ever been emotionally abused. Uh, When I was in middle school, I was bullied terribly. I was called terrible names, isolated, beat up by the boys, made fun of by the girls, hit with a metal gate that gave possibly, uh, that gave uh, possibly uh, a concussion. And I was touched sexually by one of the boys and told that if I said anything to anyone, they would brutally murder my family and my pets. The girls watched as the boys touched me and molested Uh, me during class under the tables and they would call me a slut and dirty and talk about how they would never let a boy touch them like that. Later on in high school, I was targeted by a man who forced himself on me sexually. After a gym class, the man stole my book bag and ejaculated all over it. I'm not sure why he did it, but I know he wanted me to give him a blowjob and I wouldn't. Um, any positive experiences with your abusers. I feel an unnatural desire for my abusers to like me and accept me as a person. I've just started going to therapy and talking about it, but I minimize the hell out of it and somehow think it was more my fault than theirs. They didn't do anything. I just need to get over it. Uh, Darkest thoughts, killing myself. Darkest secrets. My childhood was an extremely sexual one and was perverse when I think about it now. Unfortunately, to try and soothe my uncomfortable sexual feelings, as a child, I began to rub and dry hump my younger male cousin. I didn't think it was that terrible at the time because we weren't far in age and we both liked it, but now that I'm older, I see how fucked up and terrible I am and it terrifies me. He's about 17 now and my family is concerned because he seems to be attracted to me, but I'm too scared and ashamed to tell them what I did and I'm too disgusted with myself and scared to talk to him about it. Well, for one, you don't have to tell your your family. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, you might say something as simple as, hey, you know, the other day I was just thinking about the stuff we used to do when, when we were kids and um, I just want to apologize for it. I was... I was going through a lot of shit emotionally and, um, you know, some stuff had happened to me that, uh, you know, eh, fuck it. <laughs> Talk to a therapist. Talk to your therapist. What am I doing? I forgot you're seeing a therapist. The hell am I doing trying to coach you through this? Um, but, I, you know, my point being that it doesn't have to be this huge laid out 
talk, sometimes just a sentence or two can mean a lot to a person who is um, wants some type of acknowledgement. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like the idea of being, quote, bitched. I like the idea of older people demeaning me sexually, but I also find myself attracted to young people too. Not children, but older teens that I know are still young. With that being said, I am extremely against the idea of anyone touching my body or pleasing me sexually. The only thing that can turn me on and gets me off is watching gay male porn. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm so sorry. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for to be done with this life? This is too heavy to bear anymore. Have you shared these things with others? Yes and no. I I can't tell it all, but I've told some. How do you feel after writing these things down like a piece of shit? I feel dirty and anxious and sad and like crying, but I won't cry because I don't deserve any sympathy for my actions. Well, you know what I'm going to say here. I almost want to scold you. I almost want to scold you for, for, um, for, doing the self-flagellation thing, which is so non-productive. It's, it doesn't help anybody. And it's an excuse to keep yourself stuck. You know, calling yourself a piece of shit is actually a selfish thing to do because then you don't have to take any responsibility. And you don't have to reach out for help. And then the gifts that you could bring to the world aren't aren't brought with the full force that they would be if you healed. How's that for me on my soapbox? Feel free to email me and tell me to go fuck myself. This is an awful moment that might go down in the fucking hall of fame for uncomfortable and just pure fucking awfulsome. More on the awful, way more on the awful. But here it is. My mom, my mom found, and this is filled out by a, a, a girl. My mom found a babysitter who lived a few houses down. She was a female around 14 or 15 years of age. She watched me. Uh, she watched me. And when the time was right, she would ask if I wanted to watch TV in the back room. She would make me eat her out while she watched the Dukes of Hazard. When she was done, she would make me a sandwich on white bread with mayonnaise and bacon bits and call it a day. I will never love, like, or watch Dukes of Hazard again. If you're laughing, you're a terrible person. How do you not? If you were to make a list of things that you feel like a terrible person for laughing at, how is that not at the top of it? That is so fucked up. That is so fucked up. And I'm glad that they can laugh. I'm glad that they can laugh at it because I, f- I felt like a terrible person when I read that. And, and oh my God, that is so fucked up. That is so awfulsome. Moving on. <laughs> I, I, I should have just let... I, there's, that should have been followed by a moment of silence for 
humanity. Just to soak in the complexity of humanity. The fucking Dukes of Hazard. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, this is a memorable vacation argument. And this is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself allergic to bullshit. And she writes, One of the worst moments of my hypomania and narcissism came while my family was on vacation in Thailand. We were out in a nice restaurant with the baby and the British family of four who sat next to us immediately gave us a dirty look and asked to move to another table further away. Father, mother, and two teenage daughters. As the dinner progressed, their daughters came outside to sit and, as I see it, make ugly faces and just generally be little bitches towards my family. As it turns out, we were staying at the same hotel and during breakfast the next morning, they sat right next to us with the same bitchy attitudes. As I perceived it, as my husband walked away from the table to go fill up on more buffet fare, the mother and daughters were sitting around gossiping about my family in earshot. I swear I heard one of them say, screw them, as she looked directly at me. As a non-confrontational person, I became so uncomfortable and embarrassed that I excused myself from the table and went upstairs, leaving my husband and small child without explanation. I had a total fight-or-flight response with my emotions. Next, I returned to the dining room when I thought I had gained some emotional control and planned on casually asking the other family if we'd done something to offend them. That communication did not go as planned as I lost control and yelled, Do you have some sort of problem with us because you're being incredibly rude and made other accusations loud enough for everyone in a dining room of 200 people to hear? The mother's response? No, we were just admiring your pants. And you have such a cute baby. I cried and stormed off. Then, as it turns out, we were on the same flight home. (laughs) Herbert, don't you love that? This is a happy moment. This is filled out by... I don't even know the fuck how you pronounce this. Homunculus? Homunculus. And uh, Homunculus is a uh, trans male. And he writes, I intern at a sterile needle exchange in the Midwest. A couple in their late 20s came in to restock uh, their supplies. Uh, He said his girlfriend doesn't like him doing it. She shook her head and looked mad. And I said, hey, at least you're being healthy about it. The three of us chatted for a while. Then as they were leaving, the girlfriend turned to me and said, they really did well hiring such a non-judgmental person. We're not used to being treated with kindness and understanding. Then she took my supervisor's card and said she'd she'd, uh, call to tell the supervisor how much they appreciated me. You often say how much you long to have a completely open walls-down encounter with another human being. That's exactly what I had. She looked into my eyes. I looked into hers, and we really saw each other. My heart is going to ride around with them for the rest of the day, and I'm sure I'll think about them when the work gets hard or I I feel overwhelmed. All I did was show up and treat them like people. That was all they needed. We never know when something we do, say, or otherwise communicate to someone is going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. Part of the frustration in life is that many of us won't ever know how much of an impact we've had. Today, I think I got a small glimpse at my own impact. Even if that one interaction turns out to be my only legacy, I know my life will have had meaning. Ugh. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. That's the anti-Dukes of Hazard. And finally, this is uh, two emails that I got from the same person uh, who calls himself Mikasa. And uh, this first one I got uh, from her was, I want to say it was about a year ago. And she writes, uh, I'm so happy to be writing you from my therapist waiting room. For the past year or so, a good friend of mine has been suggesting that I go see a therapist, but I've always insisted that my problems weren't significant. After all, I've never experienced tragedy, never been raped. Heck, I've never even been to the hospital for anything serious. I listened to your interview with Ryan Sickler uh, right before going to my intake, and it really helped me internalize my own problems. As fucked up as it sounds, I remember a... Uh, feeling really angry and jealous that Ryan had a supportive father and friends when he had to deal with his abusive mother. Later on, when you mentioned that a lack of love is a legitimate problem, everything just clicked. My first therapy session went really well, and I'm lucky to have found a therapist who doesn't dismiss my childhood issues as a, quote, cultural thing. And then uh, she just uh, wrote again and wrote... um, I wrote to you a year back about starting therapy, and I wanted to let you know that the journey has been incredible, and for the first time in my life, I feel okay. I found a wonderful therapist on my second try. She makes me feel heard and understood and never guilts me for being who I am. I've laughed, cried, mostly cried, dissociated, and connected as I stumbled through my first hundred sessions. I know this is a weird thing to be telling you, but during the healing process, I had to stop listening to the podcast because the pain of hearing others being abused and misunderstood was too much. That's also why I'm so grateful that you continue to put out new episodes every week. Hey, I totally get it. I totally get it. And uh, I'm just so... I feel so... grateful so grateful to be able to to do what I do get to hear what I hear even if some of it is fucked up and dukes of hazardy um it's um you guys bring so much meaning and purpose to my life it's um I, I really can't put it into words that's probably the closest I can I can come to saying it um I wish you could I wish you could feel what I feel getting to do this job. It's um I think you guys think it's a, it's mostly draining which it's not. It's mostly energizing. And um I'm so grateful. So grateful for the guests how you guys open up and the surveys how you open up and just pour out stuff that many of you for the first time and um I I feel pretty privileged that you trust me enough to uh, read your words and and respect them and go fuck yourself. You like that? How I led you down the alley and then I just uh, took a garbage can lid and just popped you right in the face? Suck on that. All right. Enough. Oh, my God. 131 minutes. About time I shut up. Thank you so much for listening. And just remember, you are not alone. I did that backwards. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.